Well, please pray with me. Lord God, our joy is found in you. You're a God of goodness and life and abundance, and we worship you this morning. We confess that we are broken people, so often burdened by the sorrows of this world and by the pain that we experience. We ask that you speak to our hearts today as we look to you and listen for your voice. May we understand and experience more fully the goodness and life and abundance and joy that you offer. God, we continue to pray for those in Florida. We pray boldly that you would save and rescue people still caught in the collapse. And we pray and long for comfort for those who have lost loved ones. Our hearts hurt for them, God. We also continue to pray over the COVID situation. We're incredibly thankful that in our particular region, case numbers are low, but we know that's not the case everywhere. We pray for your hand over each and every country. Please give, give wisdom to leaders and to individuals, God. We thank you also for this day, the 4th of July, when we can remember and think of the many people who have served our country, and a day that we can give thanks for the many freedoms and blessings that we have. You have blessed us richly, Lord. God, there are so many things on each of our hearts here. We'll each silently pray now for those people and circumstances that you've put on our hearts. Thank you for hearing our prayers, Lord. God, we give you the rest of this morning. Thank you for the word that you've prepared for Tim to share with us. We trust that you will speak to us, that you'll soften our hearts so that we can hear your voice. We love you, Lord. Amen. And now we are going to turn to our scripture reading. And so you'll notice there's a theme today. We're going to be standing again as we read the word of God. So go ahead and stand with me. This time... I'll read and you can just follow along. Tim will talk a little bit more in just a little bit about why we've been standing before the word today. This is from John. Um, so you can just listen and um, let the Lord prepare you for, uh, for um, Tim's sermon and, and the word. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Thanks, Christine. Good morning. Some of you may be more used to seeing me here with my violin, and I'm definitely more used to being here as part of the band, Uh, but as a new elder, it's a great privilege to be here sharing the word with you all this morning. I'm excited to share a text from Nehemiah 8. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're able to gather freely this morning to hear from your word. May our ears turn towards your word And may we be attentive and obedient to the word that you have for us this morning. For your word is living and active. May the words that we read this morning pierce our soul, spirits, and thoughts. Lord, you can see the inner workings of our thoughts and the intention of our hearts. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, who was able to fully understand us and yet was without sin. Lord, you know the circumstances in which we stand. As we approach your throne of grace and your presence this morning, may you fill our hearts with hope and joy. Amen. I remember sitting in the backyard with friends during the pandemic. We kept throwing out numbers, increasing rates of new cases, hospitalization rates, exponential growth, when suddenly the four-year-old son of one of my friends came running up to his dad saying, look, daddy, look, look at this kitten I found in the yard, look, isn't she cute? And it was in that moment that everything changed. The little boy and his kitten were the center of our attention. There were smiles, strokes, and many tender words. We were surprised by joy. This isn't my own story, but a modified illustration from Henry Nouwen on being surprised by joy. The title of the sermon, Surprised by Joy, comes from a book by C.S. Lewis of the same name. You may have had a similar experience as a father and his little boy. When was the last time that you were surprised by joy? Last Sunday, Jerry, too, introduced a two-sermon series called Return, Rebuild, and Rejoice that studies two scenes from the book of Nehemiah. I'll briefly walk through these three R's to introduce our text this morning. The first R is return. The Israelites had been scattered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. The temple had been destroyed. The wall around the city of Jerusalem had been broken down and the gates burned by fire. The return of the Israelites to Jerusalem was enabled by God working through three Israelite leaders and three pagan kings. During the pandemic, we too found ourselves scattered, some to our own homes, some to different rooms in the same home with different WebExes or Zooms going, each with the doors closed, some to different cities, or some to different states. We're all in the process of understanding this new normal that we're returning to. 
and our slowly changing rhythms and habits of isolation that were established over the past 15 months. The second R is rebuild. Nehemiah 3 and 4 describe the rebuilding of the walls. We learned that God used everyone, each with their own unique skills and talents, to repair and rebuild the walls in record time. And the third R, which we'll cover this morning, is rejoice. After the walls had been rebuilt, Nehemiah 8 described the people's desire for reinstruction. And I expected this third R today to be reinstruction, but in the middle of the text, I was surprised. I was surprised by joy. I was surprised by the transformative power that's found in the joy of the Lord. So please turn with me to Nehemiah 8. We'll walk through our text this morning in four parts. In the first part, verses one through three, they describe the people gathering before the law. In verses four through six, the second part, we read about the people's posture before the law. Verses seven to eight describe the teaching of the law. And the fourth section, verses nine through 12, we look at the people's response to the law. The exile of the Israelites created hunger for what's real by stripping away what's false. But how do the people progress from the isolation of their exile to this place of joy? Let's jump into the text to find out. Verses one through three says, and all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it from the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Please imagine the scene with me that we just read. It's early morning, around six. If you listen, you can hear the excited chatter of all the people. This phrase, all the people, appears in our text seven times. All the people includes men and women, young and old. All the people includes those who can listen with understanding. In the second service, The youth are with us, and the youth are with us, one of the reasons is because they can listen with understanding. The people are gathered in the square in front of the water gate. No, not that water gate when Nixon was president. (laughs) Our text takes place much earlier in 445 BC. If you listen carefully, you can hear the sound of running water. The water gate was on the east side of Jerusalem near a spring. In the Bible, water symbolizes life, and God describes himself as a fountain of living water. In John 7:38, Jesus says, "He who believes in me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water." 
So this is a very appropriate place for the people, for the Israelites to be gathered, for they will, will receive life. The people were gathered as one man for one purpose and were longing to hear God's word, God's voice, and his direction in their lives. It was the people that initiated the renewal, not the leaders, and asked Ezra to bring the law of Moses out to them. The law of Moses here probably refers to the first five books of the Bible, or specifically to the book of Deuteronomy. The people would have remembered, they would have remembered that Moses received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, in the midst of the thunder of God's voice and lightning. They would have remembered Joshua, that Joshua gathered the Israelites with half standing in front of Mount Gerizim and the other standing in front of Mount Ebal as the people read the blessings and the cursings of the law, curses of the law, from Deuteronomy 28. They may have wondered, what will take place today when Ezra reads from the law now that the walls have been rebuilt? Now Ezra was both a scribe and priest. As a scribe, he was an expert in the law. As a priest, he was responsible for representing God to the people and for representing the people to God. Ezra 10 says that he had set his heart to study, practice, and teach the law. And today, Ezra will represent God to the people by reading the law. Now I imagine that the anticipation of the crowd builds as Ezra brings out the law. They'd been waiting for a long time. The author slows down and describes the scene in detail before the book of the law is read. Verses four through five describe the posture of all the people before God's word. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood six leaders. I think it takes a seminary degree to read some of these names. On his right hand. And seven leaders on his left. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people he was standing. For he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Now they had made this wooden podium or stage with a singular purpose in mind for Ezra to read the book of the law. This podium may have been large enough to accommodate 14 people, six people on Ezra's right and seven on his left. You can find a similar podium in cathedrals. On the screen is a picture of the lectern at Stanford Memorial Church. There is a practical purpose for a raised podium or lectern. It enables the speaker to be both seen and heard. But the raised podium is also a symbol. It's a symbol for being under the word. Today, the word's being read from a raised podium, signifying that we also are under God's word. In this section, the word that stands out, no pun intended, is stood. Ezra stood, the 13 Levites stood. When Ezra opened the book, all the people stood. And that's why we stood this morning when we read, read the, the call to worship and the scripture reading. In today's culture, we stand for kings and queens, for presidents, for judges. 
Standing is a symbol of being under the authority of those that we're honoring. When we stood this morning during the scripture reading, it was a symbol that we're under the authority of the word. So now that all the people are standing, the author continues in verse six to describe in detail what happens before the law is read. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse six describes the posture of humility of the people before the Lord. Again, all the people are united in their response. Ezra blesses the Lord, the great God. Perhaps this blessing is similar to the blessing that we read during the call to worship from Nehemiah 9. All the people respond. They respond in three ways. First, by saying, amen, amen, or truly, truly, or from the words of our song, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, amen. Third, they bow with their faces to the ground. These three responses are a wonderful picture of humility, dependence, and adoration before the Lord. This is an important place to be as we seek his voice. Verses seven to eight describe the scene when Ezra and the Levites read from the book of the law. Also, 13 Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book from the law of God translating to give them the sense so that they understood the reading. While it's possible that each Levite took turns speaking from the podium, this is a different set of people. It's a different group of 13 people than those we saw in verses one to three. It's more likely that the Levites went out into the crowd and taught in smaller groups, expounding on the meaning of what Ezra read from the law. It's not enough that the scriptures are read. They must be explained in a way that they can be understood and applied to the heart. As Paul wrote to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, from 1 Timothy 4.13. Our text this morning is a beautiful picture of two of PBCC's four family values, devotion to the word and discipleship through relationships. If you're not in a small group, I encourage you to reach out to Sharon Coleman for women's groups, to Sean Reese for men's and growth groups, and to Becca Singley for youth groups. The Lord often places something different on our hearts when we read his word. And in a small group, it's, it's really great to, to hear what each person has heard from the Lord. God uses these small groups and the relationships that we build in them in a big way. So now we get to the heart of our text this morning in Nehemiah 8, 9 to 12. Verse nine says, then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. 
this section begins with the people weeping because they're convicted of their sins when they hear the words of the law. Sometimes our wrongdoings and missteps have a paralyzing effect as self-condemnation sets in and we struggle with our grief. However, being convicted of their sins leads them to a place of brokenness and, and brings them to the gateway of joy. Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, and the Levites encourage the people in two ways. First, they say, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Our passage takes place on the Feast of Trumpets, one of the high points of the Jewish calendar. It's kind of like their New Year's. This day is holy to the Lord. This day is not holy because of anything the people have done. We see a similar idea of holiness in the New Testament. Romans 11:16 says, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. Because Jesus is, is holy, the lump, that's us, is also holy. Because the root is holy, the branches are holy. Because the Lord is holy, this day is holy. Verse 10 says, Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved. The second message from the leaders to the people is to go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions. Like Christine read, the leaders are telling the, the people to go have a party with the best food, for God approves of them. This meal looks forward to the meal that's promised in Isaiah and that's fulfilled in Christ. Isaiah 25, six to eight says, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. We'll have a foretaste of this meal later today when we celebrate communion together. This image of a lavish banquet is significant to Esther and me. When Esther was in the hospital for 20, in 2015 for five weeks with a digestive system that wouldn't wake up after surgery, God sent a person to encourage us and to pray for us. We didn't know her. We didn't ask for her to come. We didn't know she was coming. Her prayer was from Isaiah 25. Her prayer wiped away our tears and transported us to a future promise and gave us hope. But what enabled Esther and me to take part in a prayer about a lavish banquet when Esther couldn't take a sip of water? It was the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord entered the room when God's messenger entered the room. In our text, Israelites gathered in the square by the water gate are grieving, and they don't feel like participating in a celebration. 
it's difficult for them to sit, sit down before a banquet. But what takes them from a place of grief to a place of celebration? Verse 10 says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is the sinner. The joy of the Lord is the turning point. The joy of the Lord is the catalyst. Verse 11 says, so the Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. First, the joy of the Lord calms the people, allows the people to be still and removes their grief. You can see this in the words in green. Verse 12 goes on to say, all the people went away to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival. Next, the joy of the Lord enables the people to celebrate the festival. You can see that in the underlined sections. Verse 12 concludes, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Finally, the joy of the Lord allows the people to understand the words. The joy of the Lord turns weeping, which was their initial reaction to the law, to that of understanding. When Sharon spoke from the book of Habakkuk a couple of weeks ago, we saw Habakkuk transformed from a place of tension where fear and faith coincide to a place of surrender, even though the circumstances of Habakkuk hadn't changed. Even more amazing, he was able to rejoice in the midst of his worst fears. The book of Habakkuk ends with a picture of the strength, the strength of the joy of the Lord. The Lord gives us the feet of a deer, a feet that can climb over rough mountain peaks without fear of falling. The Israelites were transformed in their journey from exile to joy through longing for the law, humility, dependence, adoration before God, understanding of the law, brokenness, and joy. That's how they get from exile to joy in our text today. Let's double click on this phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I found it difficult to describe joy. It's easier to define what joy is not. Merriam-Webster's definition of joy, the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires, is not the joy that we're talking about today. In C.S. Lewis's book, Surprised by Joy, he describes his interaction with joy throughout his life as a young boy, after the death of his mother due to cancer, through a period of atheism, then a period of theism, and then when he has, finally as a Christian. And he describes joy in the following ways. Joy must be sharply distinguished both from happiness and from pleasure. Joy is different from happiness. We may not experience happiness when going through a trial, when struggling with a serious health challenge, or when struggling with our human frailties like the Israelites were today. But we can experience joy in each of these circumstances. In the second quote, C.S. Lewis says, I doubt whether any, anyone who has tasted it, that's joy, would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. But then joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. 
Joy is not in our control. We can't summon it on demand. It's not a possession, and we can't purchase it with money. We may yearn for joy in one moment, only to be surprised by joy in a different time when we're least expecting it. Our passage today doesn't say joy is your strength. It says the joy of the Lord is your strength. We can't define joy without talking about the joy of the Lord. What is the joy of the Lord? The joy of the Lord is a deep and abiding inner gladness. It doesn't depend on circumstances because it's rooted in God. Throughout the Bible, the joy of the Lord can be found in God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. The Hebrew word for joy that's found in our text this morning is only found in one other place in the Old Testament, in 1 Chronicles 16, 26 to 27. There we read that both strength and joy are found in God's presence. Joy is part of God's nature, and he's offering that joy to his children. The joy of the Lord is also found by abiding in Christ. Christ brings us into God's presence. John 1.14 describes how God became present in the flesh, dwelt among us, and allows us to see his glory. Our scripture reading, John 15, describes how we can find joy by abiding in Christ. John 15, 9, 11 says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We read John 15 as part of our scripture reading this morning. Jesus is the vine and we're the branches. The word abide is repeated 10 times in those verses. Abiding is a two-way relationship. We abide in Jesus and Jesus abides in us. By abiding in Christ, we receive nutrients from the vine and can pass through the gateway of joy. There are many ways to abide in Christ, but one of the primary ways was discussed in our text this morning from Nehemiah 8. Abiding in Christ means that we allow the word to abide in us. We allow his word to soak into our hearts and mind. We allow his word to direct our steps. We allow his word to change what we long for. By abiding in Christ, the joy that's found in God's presence will be found in us. Joy will be found in the midst of sorrow. Joy will be found in the midst of change. Joy will be found when we're convicted of our failings like the Israelites were. The joy of the Lord is experienced through the Holy Spirit. If we continue the metaphor of the vine and branches, the branches will produce fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit, among other things, is joy. The joy that we find in God's presence is unmeasurable. When joy, joy is poured out onto our lives through God's love, we stand in grace despite standing in hardship. We stand in hope instead of despair. We stand in strength instead of weakness. This is God's promise that we can cling to. From our text today, we saw how the joy of the Lord removed the grief of the people. We saw how the joy of the Lord enabled the people to celebrate a banquet. We saw how the joy of the Lord enabled the people to understand the words of the law. 
I'd like to close with a final analogy from C.S. Lewis's book, Surprised by Joy. He describes joy as a signpost. When you're lost in the wood, the signpost points you to the road. However, once you're on the road, seeing a signpost from time to time provides reassurance that you're still on the road. What's more, we may even feel grateful to the authority that installed the signpost. What does this analogy mean for us? Before you put your faith in Jesus, when you're lost in the woods, what does that signpost look like? And how does it point to God? We may experience joy when taking in a breathtaking vista, looking at a glorious sunset, when reading a poem or well-crafted story, when looking at art, as we see in like, the art around us here, when holding a baby, when holding a kitten, like in our opening illustration. God gives us these arrows of joy to point to himself and draw us into his presence. They draw us onto the road. Once we put our faith in Jesus, we found the road and know with certainty where we're going. Then joy appears as signposts along the way and provides great encouragement when we encounter one of these signposts. These signposts remind us that God is with us on the road, even though that road may travel <clears throat> through the valley of the shadow of death. They assure us that we're not lost in the woods, going around in circles. And ultimately, these signposts point us to our future destination when, we, when we'll be fully in God's presence and experiencing indescribable joy. Please consider the following as we close. What arrows of joy are drawing you to Christ and onto the road? What signposts have you seen on the road and how have they encouraged you? Or are you in a place now where you can't see signposts? Are you feeling grieved, tired, or weak? When Esther was diagnosed with cancer more than 20 years ago, I couldn't see the signposts that were on the road for a long time. Eventually, I realized that the signposts had been there all along, and that you, this body, were those signposts as you brought your arms around us and cared for Esther, me, and the kids. As a body, we can encourage one another. When you see a signpost, point them out to fellow travelers on the road. God is waiting to freely pour out his joy on you, to strengthen you in your weakness. Expect to be surprised by joy. Amen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen. Amen.